0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Kira Maya Phillips has always been fascinated by outsiders. Her grandparents were Moroccan Jews who migrated to Israel in the 1950s. They moved to the south of the country, living with their seven kids in a tiny one-bedroom apartment. They'd come to Israel expecting to be welcomed with open arms into the longed-for biblical homeland. But it wasn't that simple. Kira's grandfather couldn't read or write, but he had a heart full of poetry and he taught Kira the value of looking beyond appearances. She began her career as an economist before moving to Australia, where she now teaches history in high school. Hi, Kira.
0: Hi, Sarah. As a
1: young economist, Kira, you co-wrote a book called The Misfit Economy. What got you interested in looking at
0: misfits? Well, it was an academic interest to begin as part of my studies, my graduate studies in economics. I was always interested in the grey markets, right? Those markets that are off the books and the impact, actually, that they have of our, on our daily lives. The other strand of it is that economics can sometimes feel a bit siloed from day-to-day experience because it's presented as this highly complicated discipline that has actually nothing to do with our lives. But as we know, in you know moments like right now, economics bears down on individual lives in very real ways. So I wanted to find a way to explore it from that more human angle and that sort of infusion with my interest always in the nooks and crannies and the, the, what lies beneath the surface.
1: Why did camel farmers fit into this study of the grey economy? Who was drinking the camel milk?
0: Oh my goodness. You know, I met so many interesting people throughout this project that lasted about, you know, four, four and a half years. So it's uh, actually um, Bedouins um, will drink it. So there are cultural and religious aspects to drinking camel milk in the Middle East. I met people like that. I also met... Westerners in the U.S. who believe, and this is of course based on anecdotal evidence, that their children who suffer from autism, for example, the symptoms of it are assuaged by drinking camel milk and, and staying away from dairy, you know. Two extremes.
1: (laughs) Uh, And so how does this become part of the grey economy, camel milk, and how do Amish people start to figure in this story?
0: So what's really fascinating is that, uh, look, I met a few people. I met some Amish camel milk farmers, and the reason why... They partake in this trade is because they own camels for nativity scenes. <laughs> <Are> you serious? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so they have a camel that they will just use on the nativity scene yes. at Christmas,
1: but it lives in their That's Amish right. farms the rest of the year. That's
0: right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then I, you know, I met the, the other side of the story is that I I did meet um, an entrepreneur from Dubai who actually created a business, um, a very viable business selling camel milk in the U.S. Now, the reason why it is off the books is because unpasteurized milk, and I'm speaking with my mind sort of seven years ago when I was writing this book, unpasteurized milk is illegal and it's illegal to cross state lines with it as well. So the way that you can buy camel milk in the U.S., unpasteurized camel milk, Is that you buy into into a co-op owned by usually an Amish family, and then you're legally allowed to, to part you know drink whatever is produced. And were the Amish people that you met in this research, Kira, were they
1: concerned by the fact that their camel milk was? part of a grey economy? Did that was that a problem for them or, or just the way they operated?
0: You know, it's just the way they operated, but I think it fits in with their, you know, countercultural approach to life, right? They are removed from the modern world. And I think that eased their their justifications, right, for being involved in this kind of trade.
1: Did you visit any of these camels that are kept for nativity scenes when you were meeting Amish people?
0: Yes. I did. They're <laughs> adorable.
1: <laughs> and and what kind of landscape do they live in? I imagine it's it's a far away from the the Middle East in terms of Absolutely. heat and sun. Absolutely.
0: And, and you know it is. It's a very barren landscape with um soybeans and uh, you know the things like that. What what you imagine with those austere buildings. It it really is like that. What's fascinating as well, what one of my favorite facts about this is that camels were first introduced into the US by Jefferson Davis, who was the leader of the Confederacy, and they were used because they don't drink that much water and they're quite strong. They were used to carve the state lines.
1: Really? Um, yes. Tracing the yes. the borders of America. Yeah. I had no idea. Yes. In doing your research for this book, The Misfit Economy, you were interviewing men and women involved in all kinds of different parts of the black economy. Were you ever scared for your safety?
0: I mean, sometimes I think about some of the decisions that I made and the hubris of youth and I'm shocked that I'm sitting here with you right now. Um, Well, how dangerous could it have been? What, what, What kind of situations did you let yourself get in? So I, I spent some time in South Africa and I interviewed people who were in criminal organizations. And now that I think about it, there wasn't a way for me to get out of that situation. Thankfully, nothing ever happened. I also interviewed people in Paris who, live, who lead these sort of double lives and they have a life above ground, but they also spend a lot of time in the underground. So, you know, if you're a tourist, you can go to the catacombs. Well, there's an entire aspect of that that is completely illegal, um, where people spend time about 20 to 25 feet underground. And I went down with um, a member of one of these groups to see what it was like. And we were 25 feet underground. And it was only about two hours in that I thought, you know, I might not get out of here. And what were they doing underground? So there's one particular group called the UX, um, which is short for Urban Experiment. And they believe, and I'm not sure if they're still um, in operation, but they believe that the state does not take care of the relics of history, of French history, so there's one extraordinary example of how they broke into a government building using these underground avenues I guess and repaired a very very old clock. <laughs> <laughs> so they're like the opposite of vandals. Absolutely. They, they, they break in to restore. Yes, but the artifacts. state was pissed. <laughs> and um and you know suddenly the clock starts ticking. So um and that's how I became interested
1: researching this book on the misfit economy, did it
0: make you reflect
1: differently about your own family and their own history? Did you see any of their
0: choices or experiences with a bit of a different lens? Look, it helped me develop a lens, a different lens for for a lot of things, including my family. But then it's so interesting to me how it developed in the span of four years, which is actually a long time and by the time that we were finishing the book, it turned into this idea of what what is the benefit of looking under the surface at, of everything and that still informs my life let's talk about your your grandfather
1: Kira. where was he born your granddad?
0: My grandfather was born in a town called Warzazat, which is in south-central Morocco, and it's cradled by the Atlas Mountains to the north and the desert to the south, and it's sort of called the, the Door of the Desert, they call it. Is it a place you've ever visited? I visited it briefly, and it was a very, at once, wonderful trip, but also I'm not sure that I was old enough to appreciated in that way. So it's tinged with a bit of sadness, I would say, when I look back at that time. I, I now, and Zadie Smith says, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. It was an enormously important experience for me to be able to see, perhaps imagine my grandparents as children, which I don't think we do for the people in our lives who take care of us because it's so hard. Were you able to find the house where your grandfather
1: grew up? I was not. What what would it have looked like? What did he tell you about the kind of place he was a little kid in?
0: It would have looked like a hut, you know, of adobe and rammed earth. Very, very rudimentary and primitive, yes. Was
1: he able to go to school at all in that village?
0: Absolutely not. Uh, My grandfather's only education was hearing his parents my great-grandparents, who I sadly never got to meet, recite religious texts. He, he couldn't read nor, nor write, and neither could my grandmother.
1: And through hearing those texts, is that how he himself memorised the Torah and other religious texts? absolutely. Because as I understand it, Kira, the Torah is so central to the practice of Judaism, this book. What does it mean to be an illiterate person who is Jewish and has devotion to, to that book? How do you how did that
0: shape his faith, do you think? Look, I look back on my grandfather and I think he was a devout Jew, but he was never a Jew in a dogmatic way and judgmental way. And I think that perhaps his oral education allowed him to be less uh, strict or more flexible in his approach to his practice of Judaism and perhaps even more spiritual Um, because he couldn't argue this or that because he couldn't say, I'll look it up. It was just in him. Did they live like... um like
1: characters from a great novel almost in his imagination. Do you think yes. the story, that the figures Moses and Elijah and, and all the other figures in the Torah?
0: And with all that ambiguity that comes from reading a text in the way that text deserved to be read, you know, without a preconceived idea of what the message should be. For someone who couldn't read, he he to me was an... An amazing literary critic. (laughs) Had your grandmother also come from that that same small village? No, my grandmother um, grew up in Casablanca, which is where my grandfather ended up uh, living in as a young man. What was he doing in in Casablanca? He was always interested in growing food. Uh, He's had a little stall of vegetables and fruits at the port in Casablanca. Um, and that's that's what he did. And uh, how would he have met the the woman who became your grandmother? Do you know? I can imagine that it was an arranged marriage. I heard my grandmother who used to say that she wasn't complaining, just reporting <laughs> that I'm she gonna got. Use that line. Yeah, I'm just reporting <laughs> <laughs> that. Um, uh, I I heard her complain once that she'd been married off to someone you know who didn't wasn't as established as, as some of the people that were married off to you know her sisters or siblings and so i think that's my only inkling of the fact that it was a an arranged marriage and they were very young i mean by the time my grandmother was maybe 15 i think she already had a child
1: so your grandfather was selling fruit and vegetables by the port mm. in casablanca what happened to him one night when he was on his way home from work
0: he was beaten severely and it was never... Um, my mum's memory is that he walked home and opened the door and he was just completely destroyed. And that's her only memory um, of that. Was it because he was Jewish? He had a kippah clipped to his hair um, that my mum remembers being, you know, bloodied. There, There's some talk in my family that... Perhaps he was confused for someone else, but that was whether that is true or not. It was certainly the impetus for them to decide to, to leave.
1: What were were things like for Jewish people in Morocco in the the thirties, forties, and fifties?
0: You know, when I went to Morocco and I went to Marrakesh, um, my family was in Casablanca, even though my father's family lived in the Jewish quarter in Marrakesh. And the reason that I'm bringing that up is because the people who gave us a tour said that, you know, Jews and Muslims here living uh, in peace has always been the norm. And I believe that, and and I'm speaking only from my family history, I have, I'm not a spokesperson for what life was like. I think it was getting challenging uh, and they were concerned and they, obviously it wasn't as bad as perhaps other places at this time in history and they felt anyway that they wanted to be you know as they call it the homeland so your mother was a little girl when
1: her family decided yes. to make this move what did she tell you about that voyage about what that
0: was like my mom was around 10 years old I, I believe she remembers so she was taught Hebrew by my by her grandparents and one of the things that strikes me that she said to me is that so she was the eldest and She remembers the voyage being very difficult, of course, as it would on a boat. Um, They stopped in Marseille. And she remembers that her being the only one in the family to sort of communicate with some of the officials gave her an enormous amount of power. And I'm not sure if she realized this. I didn't realize it when she told me, but... If I think about it now and knowing about the power of language, I realize that, you know, it's the it's the, the children of immigrants that speak the language that the parents send out. It's like, please do this for me. How important is it to, to speak the language of those in power? And that really struck me when she said that to me. In terms of what I remember of the voyage, you know, uh, ill all through it, very, very... Um, nervous i think about what it would what arrival would look like exile is is a really difficult experience as we see so much in in this cultural moment and in so many before and when they arrived my mom did you know these things in families they come out really slowly right throughout the years not in one whole burst but a couple of years ago my mom told me that they shaved my grandmother's and my mom's hair just worried that they had been bringing in some kind of Illness. It must have been an awful experience. Yes, yes for them A lot to have of their hair shaved. Pain in her eyes when she when she told me about that. Where did they settle once they arrived in Israel? You know, because they settled people, right? Um, they settled them in a town in the south, and they had. Just a little plot of land. They asked my grandfather, you know, what do you want to do when you when you come coming into Israel? He said, I want to I want to build the country. I want to till the land, and and that's what they did until they moved to a town that now is a little bit tiny, little bit more urbanized. I, I can imagine back then it was nothing, where they bought their first and last apartment, where my mom and her siblings. Grew up and it's still there. How big is that apartment? Or how, how do you, when you imagine seven children and, and their parents in that apartment, what do you see? My goodness, it was tiny. You know, I grew up my whole life, even though I didn't grow up in Israel, going there often. It had a, a tiny kitchen, um, but it was where everything happened. There was an uh, an oak dining table that was had to be small because the 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 flat was so tiny but yet and and i'm not sure the the economics of how this worked <laughs> physics <laughs> the physics of it the sort of the, econo- the the economy of movement that 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 had to happen just just boggles my mind now but seven brothers and sisters all with plenty of children and we still could fit for shabbat dinner or Passover, which was my grandfather's favorite um, Jewish holiday. Um, and then I remember always my grandfather's chair where he watched TV and the couches. Where did everybody sleep? You know, on the floor. or That's just how it was. And, and you know, when my mom had children, she had three daughters who were born in Israel. She lived there as well with, with my three sisters. In that apartment? Yes.
1: The promised land of, of the Bible is, is what Israel meant to Jews in other parts of the world. Did it live up to those expectations,
0: the experience for Moroccan Jews? What was it like in reality? I think it did and it didn't. I can only speak from my family's experience. And if you ask my my mother, then to her it was all that it was promised. If you ask my father, who left because he felt like he could never be enough, then it wasn't. His family were Moroccan Jews yes, as well. same exact background. My parents were born in the same hospital, um, but they only met as as young people in, in, in Kiryat Gat um, in Israel. I think that there is a hierarchy that exists. Um, as it does, I, I think we have a proclivity to make... Other groups feel inferior as a way of finding meaning, as a way of um, perhaps defining who we are, and that has not escaped Israel despite its roots in, in the ideology of being a, a, a place where Jews can go and, and, and feel safe.
1: What did that mean for the, the Jews from Morocco? I mean, how they felt in relation to the Ashkenazi Jews, the, the Jewish Israelis from Eastern and Northern Europe?
0: I, I can't speak for anybody else's experience, but my own or my family's. But it is a sense of inferiority, absolutely, and, and it is a dynamic that is everywhere, right? It, it just—I don't, I don't, I just don't think Israel has escaped it. What kind of things
1: would your father tell you about his experience of that, or how it affected him? Growing up or as a as a young man that that sense of being looked down on as a Moroccan jew
0: well look, there's this whole idea right of and, and I've been reflecting on this being a teacher in a western system. Um, my father never felt because him and my mother lacked the economic opportunity to become educated, they felt like they could never quite uh belong or be enough. So where did your mother and father decide to move? They moved to Venezuela in South America. Why Venezuela? Like, you know, fascinating. My my father's sister had her her partner had been posted there as a diplomat and also there was enormous economic opportunity at the time, particularly for Jews. There was there was a budding kind of building Jewish community and they were encouraging people to go. um, And they went. So was Spanish your first language, Kira? Yes, it is. (laughs) It is my first language. Yes.
1: And, And what early memories do you have of Venezuela? What pictures come to mind when you think back to being a young girl there?
0: Well, it's an intensely beautiful country. What comes to mind are Caracas, the capital where I was born and grew up part of my life is surrounded by enormous green mountains. And it's only now that I'm sitting, sitting, talking to you that I see the parallel to the Atlas Mountains now. <laughs> but stunning. It's called El Avila and it's just surrounded by green mountains, always foggy at the top.
1: There is a Venezuela has struggled with incredible disparity between mm-hmm. wealth and poverty. Were you aware as, as a kid of the,
0: of the dysfunction, I guess, of that society? Absolutely. It, it, it's, um, at one point, apparently the most corrupt country and the most corrupt region in the world. I, and I'm not sure if that's still true. It is everywhere that you go. Um, there is an intense hierarchy in the country. And it's the situation in which it finds itself now, which is a, it's a crime, what what's happened to the country. Surely, has to be traced back to the maintenance of that intense inequality. Were there moments
1: where that cut through to the bubble of your own family and childhood and, and were exposed to that yes. kind of dysfunction?
0: Yes, you can't really leave your house without seeing the the sheer poverty. And additionally, yes, you know, the, the violence, the fear. I grew up very anxious worried that something bad was going to happen and it took me a long time to shed that when I left and lived in safer places. Was school a, a place of refuge then? I hated school. Hi. <laughs> um I just, I mean, I was just an awful student, uh, to be fair. Probably it's a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: can't believe this. In what kind of way? I know,
0: right? I I just couldn't focus. I hated maths. Still, if I see a student in my English class with a calculator, I put that away. It's worse than a thumb. Please. <laughs> <laughs> I w- was not, but you know, I was a very introverted child, and uh, you know, I got picked on, all of that stuff, and I just was a massive tomboy, which wasn't really accepted at all. And I just couldn't wait to get out of there. I couldn't stand it. Yeah. Was it
1: another place, do you think, where your
0: family felt as
1: outsiders?
0: I felt 100% as an outsider. And yes, my, um, while there were people with similar backgrounds, there was something there. I can't quite put my finger on it right now, but certainly. What do you remember about the decision that your family made or your mum made mm. to return to Israel? I don't remember a time when my mom wasn't longing for Israel. Constant longing. And it came to a point when I was about 11 when she felt like it was time to go. My parents are separated, so it was just me and her. My mom raised me. And I remember her just this longing for home that is beyond language. And... We went and those two years that we spent there ended up being my grandfather's sort of last two years alive. This is conversations with Sarah Kanaski. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations.
1: Kiri, you were telling me about returning to Israel and spending time with your grandfather. What memories do you have of him from those two years?
0: I have memories, you know, from very ordinary moments of just sitting next to him and watching him watch TV. What did he like to watch? the news
1: (laughs) (laughs) whatever was on (laughs) whatever was on what did he look like was he a big
0: man what what was he like as a physical presence uh very he had dark skin very very white hair he was to me in my memory tall but probably not considering that everyone in my family is very short (laughs) so he probably wasn't tall at all um quite sort of you know, bulky and very large hands. But that's probably because I have this photo of him holding me as a baby. So I just have this memory of him having very large hands. And
1: were they workers' hands, given absolutely. his time
0: that he spent in fields? They were in workers' fields? hands, absolutely.
1: What was Shabbat like in
0: your grandparents' house? Oh, well. Wow. Very lively. It's very loud Moroccan fa- I mean, Jews are loud, but this is a very loud Moroccan family. There's no repression happening (laughs) at all. (laughs) Um, I remember my grandmother cooking always a spicy Moroccan fish, uh, couscous, of course, and the dish that I have carried very much throughout, which is Moroccan chicken tagine with preserved lemons and olives, and it's just vibrant with the reds and oranges of paprika and cumin and I just think about it and I smell that flat yeah you say you were uh, an introverted child mm. a family with all that noise and activity yeah. was it somewhere you like to be um noise still bothers me if that's kind of an answer to your question I can't imagine there were many places to retreat no you know? not at all no <laughs> was there a spot could you hide under that table or where I had a I couldn't but you know what I did have so it was the 90s as I said so I had a bag where I put all of my CDs in it, and I had a, a Discman, and that was my refuge. And I'd have it on there, and, you know, don't ask me what I was listening to, but that, that Maybe was... you just had it on silent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Passover or or Pesach is the celebration that commemorates the Israelites being freed from slavery in Egypt. What was the atmosphere like uh, at Pesach in your grandparents' apartment?
0: You know, it always reminds me of him. Every year, that's the the Jewish holiday that most reminds me of my grandfather because I feel, and I must be wrong, that that was his favourite. And, you know, when I think about it, this year recently I read a wonderful book called The Hours by Michael Cunningham. It's an adaptation of Mrs. Dalloway, which is another one of my absolute favourite novels. But there's this bit at the end that really punched me in the gut when I read it. And he says that there are these moments in life when it bursts open, and it gives you, against all odds and expectations, everything that you ever imagined. And it's, it's not this moment, it's an hour here or there. And... Then we know uh, that there will be other hours that will be darker and more difficult. But yet, all we want is more of that. And when I think about my grandfather at Pesach table, that that moment when I read that—that that was him. That that—that's what he was exuding to me in those moments. But my grandfather was a very quiet man, so we didn't talk like this all the time, and whatever I have from him are in those that hour here or there where he felt like he could express things. And the atmosphere was very rowdy, as always, very lively. Pesach is wonderful because it encourages particularly young children to ask questions, and it's formed around a story. And it's no wonder that that's what I remember the most. Given there were so many kids, so many people
1: and your grandfather was a quiet man. How did you communicate or what was the nature of your connection and did you have one just with him or were you part of the great tribe of beloved (laughs) kids and grandkids or did you feel there was a way that you and he had a different kind of connection? I think
0: everyone was beloved. I do find that my relationship with him and my mother particularly, are that, that that's what carries me through life. And I felt like we had a very strong connection. My grandfather's health deteriorated very slowly over a number of years. And he started to lose his memory towards the end. And I have this memory of arriving from Venezuela with my mom. And I had probably seen him maybe in a year, maybe longer. And, you know, I was a young kid. You grow up really quickly, right? You change physically very quickly, and I remember walking in and he'd been forgetting people that he seen every day, but he remembered me and the, I, I do have a, it's a very tender memory for me.
1: And I guess thinking about it, Kira, your grandfather had gone through his own kind of exodus. Do you think that's part of the reason why Pesach, why Passover was so powerful and meaningful to him?
0: I think it reminded him of his own exile. Um, I think... He felt that very strongly. The way that he read that story, I think it can be presented sometimes in a very one-dimensional way. It's a very popular story, of course. The story of the freedom from slavery. Absolutely. He saw all those ambiguities that someone with a literary mind would... What kind of Moses was your granddad's Moses? How did he see that figure? Highly complicated man who didn't believe he was good enough to to take his people. That had to be convinced by God that it was enough that he had he had done enough. I the other element of it that I remember very clearly is when he described that they cross, you know, they, the the parting seas, and they sing the song of the sea, but yet. Don't forget, and this is a very Jewish thing. It's right behind you, the sea, you know, it's, it's right there, right? Don't relax. Don't relax. <laughs> yeah. What do you think he most wanted to impart to you, his granddaughter, about what mattered in life? I can say what I learned from him the most, which is sometimes really difficult to remember. I think he glorified the ordinary life and that he understood that it was very difficult to live an ordinary life. And if you could just wake up and do what you do and go to sleep, and if you're lucky, time will devour you, then that was enough. If I think about how to derive meaning from experience, I would say that that's what I look to the most. And that was the role of faith, you know, to him. But there were two aspects of it. The first one is that we heal when we turn our hearts towards one another. And in, in Pesach, he often, not often, every single year, he would leave the door open for Elijah, who said, we, we shall turn our, the hearts of fathers to their sons and the hearts of sons to their fathers. And he lived by that. And in that way, he built, I believe, this place within him of an internal landscape, I guess, where he could go to that has never been wounded, and that's what faith gave him. Um, I think of faith, that's the role that it plays in my life, um, and it, it is directly a result of, of him. After he passed away, you mm. and your
1: mum moved again. Where did you end up going to high school? I went to high school in Miami. <laughs> this is like, <laughs> this is around the world in 80 days. I Kira. know, right? <laughs> it
0: is. How did you feel like you fit in in Miami it's interesting. I've been, you know, I, I was born in Venezuela, lived there, lived in Miami, lived in Israel in these sort of really hot, arid places. And I am at heart. I love the winter coat and just old buildings and walking to bookstores. And like, I just felt out of place wherever I went until I moved to London, you know, in my, in, in my late teens and early 20s. How did I feel like I fit in? You know, I just realized that school was important when I moved. Um, I started high school and my whole life was doing well at school and uh, making up for lost time. <laughs> but I'm even thinking about what language you must have, you would have learned in Spanish then yeah. you were speaking Hebrew. Was English yeah. a whole new landscape you? I was learning English, absolutely. I mean, I I learned English, and this is why I will never criticize my kids for relentlessly reading Captain Underpants and The Diary of a Wimpy Kid, because thank you, John Grisham and Nickelodeon, for teaching me English, (laughs) because that's how I learned the language.
1: (laughs) What other kind of books grabbed your attention and imagination as a teenager?
0: Um... Judy Bloom. <laughs> uh, I I remember very vividly reading Judy Bloom. But on a more serious note, when I started high school in Miami, I was in the English as a Second Language program, and I worked really hard there. And then was moved to the normal sort of streamed um, English. And the first thing that I had to do in my English class, and this was in year ten, I had to write. There was only one assessment that year, and it was writing an essay on a classic novel. So I very quickly Googled what a classic novel was. <laughs> and the first thing that came up was actually Jane Eyre. And I thought, all right, yeah, I'll read that. I bought it, and I had a dictionary, and I had sort of my winter break uh, to read that novel, and I... Read it, and I'm sure that there is an enormous amount of meaning that I could not, un- for the life of me, unearth. A lot of dogs, and uh, you know, English country houses, English country houses, you know, <laughs> it was exactly that I couldn't unearth. But there's something about sort of Jane's inability to pin down how she feels about the world that I felt uh, connected to me, and that was just that. That was the beginning of and also such an extraordinary
1: character who feels so much oh, and yeah. and kind of it's one of those books that justifies or validates an intensity of feeling That's... and and of a solitary figure in the landscape i think of all those scenes of jane just wandering through the moors
0: or alone mm-hmm. on that on mm-hmm. that estate full of feeling absolutely look I, de- I felt understood when i read when i read that book absolutely
1: you returned to Israel as a young university student. Mm. I imagine you were going back and forth a bit in those years. What experiences did you have personally of the kind of racism or prejudice that your your father had told you was a reality for him growing up as a Moroccan Jew?
0: That return to Israel was very difficult um, in the sense that I just... I look back and, oh God, I wish I could say that I enjoyed part of it, but I really didn't uh, because I came in with an expectation to reconnect with my roots. And what that return did was actually move me further away from it. I experienced, what, I mean, I'm thinking of one particular mo- moment when it was at its starkest Um sitting down to dinner. I um, still remember the place, a quite a loud, busy restaurant in Tel Aviv, which is where I was living. And I was sitting not with two Israelis, actually, but two German expats and just a normal dinner. And then one of them started denigrating, you know, Moroccan Jews or, or Sephardi Jews, and that they had not contributed anything to to the country, that it was actually people from his culture, which is, I guess, Northern European, Eastern European culture, that had brought this more westernized culture to the country, classical music, Tolstoy, you know, that, the, the canon that, that we learned to worship. And I said nothing. I was, you know, I should have. Well, um, he didn't realize your background was I think he did. as a Moroccan. I'm pretty sure that he did. Uh, I said nothing that night, you know, just hearing him just denigrating. When you think back mm. to that moment, what, what do you think it was that kept you quiet? I, I don't know. I, I'm angry with myself. I, again, I wasn't someone to speak out, like generally, so... I guess it would be, um, it's not whether it's right or wrong, but the reality of shame is is
1: real if, if you're hearing yourself, your family... Uh, attacked in that way. It, it, it's an understandable reaction, I, I guess, if yes. that was part of it.
0: And you you end up internalizing that shame, which is exactly uh, what happened to me at that point. And I'm not sure that if it was a moment in that moment that it just happened, I think it's over time. But after that experience, I, I actually moved to London shortly after that to pursue my graduate studies. And You know, as we've been chronicling here, um, you know, moving around so much and not really quite feeling like I belonged in any of the places that I'd been. I felt a bit like a fish in water in London for some reason, and I don't know why. But And then so I decided, you know what, that's it, I'm done. Uh, That uncomfortable dance that every immigrant knows between who you are, where you come from, and who this new country demands that you are, this middle space where so much beauty comes from that must at all costs be preserved i refused it and i pursued that high culture high culture i'm using on my hands here that he so worshipped and lo and behold the gates of the west just flung right open When people would ask you in London
1: where you were from or
0: who are you, Kira, what would you answer? That's such a hard question still. I would say, oh, you know, yes, I'm Venezuelan, but my parents were born here and then they moved to Israel and now I'm here. <laughs> it's very quickly. <laughs> and they were very yes. quick. About yeah. that weather? That's it. Exactly. <laughs> or let's queue up here. Yeah. <laughs> so
1: in a way you, as you describe it so eloquently, you'd, you'd stepped away from that wrestle about mm. where you belonged and decided you were going to be a high performing, high achieving economist in London, where there's lots of calls to wear winter coats and go to bookstores. Mm-hmm. It fitted lots of the things that mm-hmm. you were interested in. What brought you to Australia?
0: For my sins, of my uh, Australian partner. You fell in love. I did, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you go to London and meet an Australian. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> was um, it hard for him to convince you to, to move again, this time to yes. the other side of the world? It was very hard. Um, How he- did he do it? Oh, my God. You know, photographs of Bondi and Bronte. And um, there's that Australian line. I'm not sure if you, having lived in London, heard, you know, Australia is a great place to raise kids. As if children have not grown up anywhere else <laughs> on one Earth. In one-bedroom apartments exactly. in the south of Israel. <laughs> Exactly. Um, it, it, it was a... You know, of course I have a a sense of adventure as well where I felt like it could be an exciting thing. The circumstances of our move were so much easier than so many others. The only issue for me was that I'd paid, I felt, this very heavy price for that identity and now I felt unmoored and porous and like as if I could could be affected by anything. And the difficulty of identifying yourself so strongly to a place really came to the fore. I wish that as humans we could have a more malleable idea of home and belonging. Well, having children can really ground you
1: Mm. in a place because they feel that they're a part of that country. Has having children forced you to put down roots in this place in a different way?
0: Absolutely. Um, I think that... Every day, you know, you move somewhere and you don't realize, but every day you are settling. Every day, something small. And it's tiny, quotidian things like, uh, yeah, you know what? I love this peanut butter. <laughs> do Do you know what I'm saying? It's these tiny things. Um, and then you realize, oh, yes, I, I care about... Who wins the seat in Wentworth? And then you're like, oh, right, I feel more at home now. Yeah, you you know, you realise that. You've also reinvented your career here, training as a high school teacher. Was that something you were always drawn to? How did that happen? You know, I was absolutely always drawn to teaching. As I said, in my early years, I was a terrible student and did not value the education that was being imparted on me. When I went to high school, I was very lucky to have gone to a very good high school with extraordinary teachers. And my, particularly my history teacher, who I have enormous amount of love for, really nurtured my, I I guess, my, my love of investigation and reading. And he communicated that you need to claim your education you can't just sit and take it in and that that education is freedom and i was so inspired by that that i felt like i wanted that i, I wanted to be able to do something i mean if i ever get to half of what he achieved then it would be very uh, i would be very happy with myself um the other aspect of it that i loved was that you know, there's something that Zadie Smith says once, is that you can't take it for granted. Loving something, you cannot take it for granted, and sometimes it just needs to be taught. And I feel very lucky that I can love reading, that I can love history. My grandfather, as we've spoken about, had an enormous um, role to play in that, but that that is something that I go into the classroom thinking about now, and... I feel very affirmed in, in having decided to to, to to finally do it after so many years.
1: Your sons, of course, never got the chance to meet your no. grandfather, their great-grandfather. Mm. What
0: stories do you, you tell them about the man mm. that he was? I think that children can be very, very binary. I mean, we can all be, especially when we're struggling, right? We, we can be very binary. And what I really express to them is his... Ability to rest in that ambiguity. Things are not either or, and that is the greatest message. And look, and obviously, I'm not a religious person, but those festivals that we celebrate—that's when he comes to the fore, uh, where I try to, I guess, relay to them in this oral, you know, through through this oral history of our family, that life is long as well. Life is long, and you don't know where. Where on earth you're going to end up? (laughs) Kira, Australia is lucky to have you. Thank you so much for sharing some of your story today. Thank you so much. It's been such a privilege to talk to you. Thank you. Broadcast. Podcast. You're listening to Conversations.
1: Kira Meyer-Phillips was my guest on Conversations today. A big thanks, as always, to the Conversations team, executive producer Carmel Rooney, producers Nicola Harrison, Meggie Morris and Alice Moldovan, and, of course, my excellent co-host Richard Feidler. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konosky. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.
0: Hi, I'm Kurt Fernley, Paralympian and proud person with a disability.
1: And I'm Sarah Shands, mum of a bright, bubbly, hilarious kid with a disability. I'm an hilarious, I'm fabulous.
0: We're the hosts of a new ABC podcast called Let Us In. Each week, we'll speak with people from around Australia to find out what it's like to live with a disability. She belongs in society, that she's not going to be separated because of who she is and her disability. Every time I arrive at the airport, I turn into someone I don't like.
1: I start to volunteer in different places because I believe to be a volunteer, it keeps you alert.
0: The way that I think about it is that shame is the voice of rejection whispered in the inner ear that says, I am not worthy. Real stories
1: from people with disability about what's really going on.
0: Let us in. A new episode out every Wednesday on the ABC Listen Up.